0: So this is the Karaniya Mettasutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, Contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise eyes would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease whatever living beings there may be whether they are weak or strong or meeting none the great or the mighty medium short or small the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill-will Wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. Spreading upwards to the skies, and downwards to the depths. Outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to wrong views, the pure hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Sadhu. So, Um, I'm going to talk about right effort, which is the sixth path factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. So what I'll do first is share the screen so that you can see the whole Eightfold Path and refresh your mind on that one first. So let me do that. Um, it sort of doesn't. Can you see the screen?
1: You'll have to. Yes, we can. We can see up from one to four. Um, if you would like to okay. just simply click on the top of the. Um, yes, and oh, you can move it.
0: Move yeah. it up? Right. Okay. Right. So the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, also referred to as the Middle Path has these um, eight path factors, right view and right intention. These are the wisdom factors. Then we have right speech, right action, and right livelihood. This is the virtue section or sealer. And then you have the meditation section, which is right effort, right, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So, before we talk about right effort in terms of the meditation section, which is what I'm going to do, I'll just remind you that I assume that the aspect of um, our speech and act- actions, which is covered by the Sila section, that we take for granted that those foundations are already uh, laid in our. Practice that, uh, and that also takes effort, of course, to follow the five precepts daily in your daily life. But I'm not going to go into that. I'm going to the um, right effort, which relates to mental effort, the mental purification side of the Eightfold Path. I've highlighted right mindfulness because the two right effort and right mindfulness actually have to go work together, and you'll see why that is soon. So, we all know that to do anything in life, effort is required. So it's the same with the spiritual path. I got to thinking about this because, you know, I was thinking well, what is right effort? Does that mean, you know, you just sit more often on the cushion and sort of stretch it out to an hour instead of half an hour? You know, what is this right effort that is being talked about? And then you hear people refer to it as wise effort. And then you hear people refer to it as effortless effort, which, of course, I like the idea of that, but let's explore what that really means. Um. The other thing to note is that the Buddha talks about energy and effort quite a lot. Many, many suttas, this is covered. So energy, virya, and effort is vayama. So these I've picked out a few commonly um, cited um, places, the four supreme efforts which is very similar to what I'm going to talk about within the Eightfold Path. Then there's the five spiritual faculties, which I will mention shortly. And then quite a few of you would have heard about the seven factors of enlightenment. So all of these have a mention of either energy or effort. So the Buddha basically is supposed to have said that this path is not for the lazy so you can see why what you know why it appears in so many places now the other thing that is said by the buddha is that what is needed is a balanced effort because um and i'll illustrate this with a story from the time of the buddha the mind is a delicate tool so it's not something we can sort of charge in and force things to happen one it's it has it's it has a kind of a mind of its own i suppose but we think that this is my mind and i can force it and all this kind of thing and that can actually pose problems so what we are looking for is a balanced effort now at the time of the buddha there was this uh, venerable sona he ordained, he was, prior to ordination, he was a lute player. And he was very diligent, he was very keen to make progress. So for many months, he practiced diligently. And that meant things like walking meditation all night. So other monks noticed that his walking path was bloodstained because of the you know, damage he was doing to his souls. But also, Sona himself felt that there was no results coming from this practice. And he became agitated, he was disheartened, and he decided to disrobe. So he mentioned this to the Buddha and asked for his opinion. And the Buddha, as usual, doesn't answer the question directly. He goes, uh, explores the context first and tries to make the answer relevant to the person. So he asked Sona, what were you doing before you ordained? And Sona said, "Uh, Bhante, Lord, I was a musician and I played the lute. So then the Buddha says, well, when you're playing the lute and you tune the instrument, if the strings are very tight, what sort of a sound do you get? And Sona says, well, it's screeching sound and and the strings can break sometimes. Then he says, what if the strings were slack, a bit loose? And And Sona says, well, when the strings are too slack, it has a dull sound. It's not pleasant. So then the Buddha says, and how do you get the right kind of sound? And Sona replies, when the strings of the lute are not too tight and not too slack, then I get the sound that's right. And so the Buddha says the middle path is just like that. Too much energy leads to restlessness, agitation, and no results. Too little energy leads to lethargy and dullness. So it has to be a balanced practice. And in particular, at this stage, he would be referring to the Five spiritual faculties, which we need to balance at this beginning of our practice. So, those things are faith or confidence in the teaching, which you develop as you go, energy. Here we go. Energy has to be balanced. And the balancing monitoring factor is mindfulness. So, that awareness has to be around in the picture, and concentration is also another factor, and wisdom. So these five have to be balanced. And mindfulness, which is in the center of it all, is what helps you to balance these qualities as you're developing. And if one is a bit out of kilter, too much tranquility, then you want to step up your energy and so on. So I'm going to focus, though, on right effort as it is taught in the Noble Eightfold Path. So, as I said, we have to see it in that context of the right effort, the sila, samadhi the wisdom factors, the virtue factors, and then the meditation factors of which right effort is the first one, right mindfulness is the next, and then right concentration is the third of those meditation factors. Now, Right effort has a very specific meaning. I have given the sort of the summary version of it, but basically it says there are two aspects to be developed. One is to do with unwholesome mind states, which is you have to reduce and if possible prevent the arising of unwholesome mind states. And what's that? That is these three factors, greed, hatred, and ignorance. These are the roots that motivate unwholesome, from these unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome speech, unwholesome actions result. So any, anything that's powered by unwholesome mind states leads to uh, the resulting karma as well. Now, the other aspect is wholesome mind states. Here, our task is to put, the effort is to initiate and increase wholesome mind states. And what are they? The opposite. So the opposite of greed is generosity, renunciation. Opposite of hatred, goodwill, metta. And the opposite of ignorance is wisdom. So if we can develop these qualities, then they will guide our thinking, our speech, our actions. And of course, this is the path for purification of greed, hatred, and ignorance, which is your path to enlightenment. So this, um, it's, it's very central to understand that. Um, actually, doing it is not so easy, but let's keep going. Now, when we talk about effort, and this is a mind effort, right? Sort of, I was trying to boil it down to well, what exactly is does this consist of, and so I've been reading quite a few different monks explaining this, and so this is what I've distilled it down to: four things. And the first thing is remembering. What are you remembering? To be aware. See, the problem is we keep forgetting. We talk about mindfulness, we talk about awareness, but in, you know, as we get on with our daily lives, we forget. And it's, this is the problem, we don't remember. So this is the first thing, remembering. The second thing is being aware of the present moment experience, in other words, mindfulness. So one becomes aware of what is within ourselves, what we are experiencing, but also externally what we are experiencing through our sense organs. Third thing is repetition or continuity. So if you keep repeating this, it gathers momentum. Then the fourth thing is a relaxed attitude. And it's, um, it's a kind of sense of sit back and watch without interfering. But there's a subtle effort being made with a relaxed attitude as opposed to a striving for a preconceived idea of what you're going to achieve, whether it's bliss or something else. This is relaxed and an attitude of just watching, seeing what arises. Now, when we do our practice tonight, I'm going to ring a bell to do to prompt the remembering. But the rest of it, we'll have to do as we normally do. So remembering is important. Um, so now about applying right effort. So how do we do this? So as I said, it starts with mindfulness or noting mind states whether it's unwholesome or whether it's wholesome you just notice what that mind, what one's mind state is the problem is that if we are unaware or we don't remember to be pay attention to the present moment the default habitual mode takes over which is usually unwholesome because we've been doing that since we were born, or even from before that, in in our previous lives. So we have these deeply rooted, motivating drives, which is greed, aversion, and ignorance. So if you allow the negative mind states to proliferate, which is very easy to do, they become ingrained habits, and they go unchecked. Wholesome roots, the seeds of that are also present within us and have to be developed. So this is non-greed, metta or compassion, wisdom. The seeds are there and have to be nurtured. Now, the, our more recent neuroscience research informs us that these cognitive functions, the mind brain functions, have capacity to undergo change. So this is why the repetition The continuity is important because we are rewiring our brains, so to speak, in certain some ways, if you put it that way. Um, So mindfulness and other wholesome qualities take some effort to cultivate at first because of the scattered mind and forgetting to pay attention. So often we plug on with, we don't see much in the way of results. And so this is where we need confidence to keep going, patience, and some energy to persevere. I know how difficult it has been for me for years to get my bottom on the cushion, Um, but, you know, over time, you can start to see results. The wholesome qualities are required to overcome the unwholesome. So when we develop mindfulness, non-greed, compassion. We experience these states as being conducive to our well-being. We enjoy these qualities. So that promotes our interest in this practice, as well as confidence. And the practice then gives rise to energy, which helps, um, and the energy in turn helps the practice. So I'd like to quote Joseph Goldstein, who's a very well-known meditation teacher uh, based in Massachusetts, very uh, insight meditation uh, society. He talks about moments of awareness per minute. So he says, if you want to look at it like the engine of a vehicle, you've got to get up enough revs per minute for the, the motor to start turning easily. So he said, likewise, with mindfulness, we have this moments of awareness per minute, MPMs, as he calls it. And as the practice gathers momentum, there starts to become this autopilot sort of a thing happens, gathers momentum, and the path unfolds. And at this point, you have to sort of step back and There's less doing is needed. So you realize that seeing happens because we have eyes, because eyes make contact with some object. Seeing happens. Hearing happens. The mind already knows this, even though we are not especially paying attention as such, but we are aware because that awareness has been cultivated. So over years of practice, you gradually switch from the doing to the recognising. And this is, I think, what you would have heard of as effortless effort. You gain understanding that this process is just happening. There is no self, a you, that's involved doing this. It is happening. It's a process. The mind starts to see this more and more, and with that wisdom arises quite naturally with the momentum. So, the idea is start now and keep going. Um, I wonder if we should, we've got a few minutes before meditation to just look at a practical example of what could happen when we are sitting in formal meditation practice. Um, I'm using that as an example because day-to-day life, it's harder because we are constantly responding to stimuli, to inputs that we get. But in formal meditation practice, we are not doing that. We are observing. We, are, we have uh, that attempting, we are trying to develop attention and awareness, and in a um, way that is not either grasping or rejecting. So we have this poise that we're trying to develop with this awareness. So we sit down comfortably, we relax, and... We choose our meditation object, which might be a very broad one, which is present moment awareness. So hearing sounds, feeling the contact of your clothes with your body, touch sensation, feeling your bottom on the cushion, touch sensation, um, thinking, we notice thinking. So these are all um, things that come to our attention. So while we are trying to stay with the object of my mindfulness, what happens? The attention drifts to something else. So, for example, I've been involved in something which has been um, very stressful, and I'm getting very cross with people who don't agree with me on this topic. And so the moment I sit down, within a few minutes few seconds sometimes, this starts to bubble up. Why do they say this? Why can't they see that this is not a good thing to do? La, la, la. So I get totally carried away. Then what are my counter arguments? So this is proliferating now. And this is all unwholesome. You're not in the moment. There's no... Um, you. This is ignorance. Now you're fabricating this whole story. This is not... The present reality. But I have got caught up and drifted off into this future fantasy. And suddenly I realize, oh, thinking, thinking, planning, planning. So you just realize, okay, let me just label what's happening. That helps me to then stand back from the whole story that's going on in my mind. And it creates a moment of choice. Do I proliferate this unwholesome dialogue? Or do I just watch and understand, yes, this unwholesome process is happening? I might choose then to change my object of attention and say, let let me just go back to the breath, stay with breathing in, breathing out. This is what's happening in this moment, breathing in, breathing out. Or I might choose to look at the underlying feeling state or the emotional state that's driving the whole dialogue, which is anger, which is ill will. You know? So I can focus on that and notice the anger. I can be aware of that feeling. Watch that rising, And if you can really stay with it, you can also see it passing away. So the driving force then dissipates, and the dialogue dissipates. And, you know, you might choose to go back to the breath and stay with that and develop mindfulness and calm, concentration, based on that meditation object. So the mindfulness creates a space so that it can then apply the effort that's required to go from something unwholesome, just to bear attention and to something wholesome. So this is just a little example of what can happen and how this effort translates into practice. So I'm happy to stop there for the moment and um, go into maybe guided meditation. Um, I will just, If is that okay, Chris, if I move into that?
1: Yes, that would be wonderful. Now, before you do, Gita, would you close your screens here? Okay. Just, yes, perfect, thank you. Okay, over to you, Gita.
0: All right. So I will guide you through the uh, meditation initially, and then uh, for the purpose of reminding people to go back to the mindfulness, to pay attention, I'm just going to use the bell and let that be the reminder. So we'll start. So if you can check your posture and sit comfortably in your chair, possibly move your shoulders, head and neck around a little bit if you need to have some stretch and movement, and then sit back comfortably. Just check that you're holding, if if you're holding tension, that you're able to release some of it, starting from the top of your head, over your forehead, your face, the jaw is relaxed, a half smile helps to relax the jaw, down to the neck and shoulders, Letting go of any tension, moving down to the chest, you might notice some breathing movements, down to the front of you, further down to the abdomen, again, relaxed in some movements with the breath, sweeping your tension from the neck right down the back to the lower back, releasing any tension. Down to the pelvis and thighs, releasing any tension. The legs, down to your feet, noticing the contact between your feet and the ground. and just experiencing sitting at ease. As you become aware of the present moment, you may notice sounds inside the room or outside. Sounds arise and pass away. You might notice a sensation of touch of your clothes on your body, or between the buttocks and the cushion. much of your hands resting on your lap. and the movements, it's breathing in, breathing out, will come to your attention perhaps, You might notice thinking, thinking, thinking. If possible, let that go and return to experiencing the sensations in the present moment. You might notice emotional states, like anger or peace, desire for something, anticipating something pleasurable. So these can be hindrances to concentration or present moment awareness. As we get drawn into greed, or ill will, or dullness, or restlessness, these are common hindrances to concentration. So, just allowing the mind to settle back into the present moment awareness or the awareness of breath. Just sit back and watch in a relaxed mind state. And let the bell remind you what you need to remember. So in the last couple of minutes, to the end of meditation, turn your attention to the question of how you're feeling, what sort of um, emotional state now, compared perhaps to when you first started the meditation. So when you've had a little stretch, and you're ready to ask questions or make any comments, I'm happy to go with that.
1: That sounds excellent, Gita. So if you would like to um, unmute yourselves, if you'd like to ask a question. Uh, or make a comment or if you would like to type it in the chat we'd be very happy to read it out Oh yes, Eddie, would you like to unmute and ask a question?
2: Oh yes. Uh hello Gita, thanks for your wonderful presentation. Okay, thank you. Yeah, okay. I I heard from Chris introduction that you are actually a psychiatrist. Am yes. I right?
0: Yes, recently oh. retired. Does that count? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering um, because you are a Buddhist so the mm-hmm. Buddhist approach must influence a lot of your a lot of your style in dealing with the patients mm-hmm. especially the patient with um, depression or anxiety disorder so I just want to ask you how actually the Buddhist Buddhist teaching helped you in handling cases like that in helping the patients who suffer from depression or anxiety disorder, because it is um much about having this negative cycle of thoughts and you know finding a solution to do with the cognitive and the way of thinking. So I'm I'm just wondering how how does Buddhism actually help you in that? Thank you.
0: Um. I suppose in some ways I should say that the teachings really help me to manage myself and in that situation with when I'm dealing with other people rather than me um, expressly using the Buddhist teachings. So I would... Um, there are certain principles that were helpful to me. For example... Uh, Listening with metta, non-judgment, universal friendliness. There is that base, provides an environment. The other thing is using the breath, even during the the sessions, to allow the whole level of tension to drop. And what you'd find is that when your own levels of tension drops, it helps the others as well. So you're not escalating anything, you're allowing things to settle so that then the person can actually look at what they want to look at. Um, With uh, specifically using strategies for um, looking at thoughts and feelings, um, I would often use uh, someone who does cognitive behaviour therapy specifically if I felt that that person needed to be doing that kind of work. I was very mindful not to bring Buddhism as such into the sessions, because um, occasionally I would have people who asked me things like, um, do you know anything about Buddhist meditation? So then I would use that opportunity. I said, yes, I, I do have some training in that. And, if they wanted to find out more about it, I could introduce them to the idea, but I could also tell them where they could find more about it. So um, yes, so I wasn't specifically using the Buddhist teachings in this in that direct way. I did have one person who said to me that she she had been to a conference looking at sleep sleep problems, and she understood about metta meditation as being of help, and she was trying it on her own, and it was working. So that was useful to know, and then to be able to then extend what she was doing. So, uh, but it, I can't give you a specific answer in how I actually used it with others. More, it's how I used within myself.
2: Thank you, Gita. I get the idea. Thank you. Okay. okay.
1: Um, thank you, Gita, and thank you, Eddie. Is there anyone else who would like to take the opportunity and ask a question?
3: Um, can I ask a question? Yes.
1: That'd be lovely,
3: um, yeah, just a small question because um, I thought that remembering that in in the a document that you show the talk yes. about the elements of the four the four different qualities of effort. I yes. thought that the first one and the second one is very similar. Yes. And I thought that they are also similar with the fourth one. And I'm wondering um the way you talk about remembering this this is you mean this does does that mean that you try to re, like you remind yourself? of being aware?
0: Yes, yes. Because um, what happens is um, we forget to pay attention to the present reality. We can be eating the most delicious meal, but our mind after the first is gone somewhere else. So we don't experience what's in front of us because we don't remember, we don't remind ourselves that this is a useful thing to do. So most of the time, why mindfulness doesn't work is because we forget to apply it. So that's why I said, okay, remember, that's the first thing. Remember to be aware, yes, and then be aware. So they are all overlapping, but it's the fact that we forget to pay attention in that particular way, with mindfulness, where we pay attention in a non-judgmental way to what is happening in the present, rather than absenting ourselves and drifting off into other things in our own minds. So we don't understand the present reality. And the Dhamma is about, ultimately, it's about understanding the true nature of existence. So this is how we start, by simple observations by seeing how things arise, pass away, how the mind works, how it's so uh, restless. And so we we are unable to experience calm and tranquility because of this movement, which is constant. This isn't the normal state of affairs. So we forget. And so that's often what teachers say, remember mindfulness, then you will do it. Yes
3: I want to say that um, like because I think awareness is opposite to distraction.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yes, and I think that if you are aware, then you are not distracting yourself right? But I think um, sometimes awareness brings me a lot of distress if I'm <laughs> aware, because like it's maybe a lot of internal things going on and those emotions are constantly very overwhelming Mm -hmm. then if I am aware like I try to do one thing at a time then I will feel very overwhelmed then at that point I will deliberately seek out distraction I am aware that I am distracting myself and like I want to ask uh does that count as a kind of awareness or like it's not it's not in a in a like category that you're talking about
0: no that uh, what what you're describing there is with awareness of this moment and whatever is happening internally it's bringing up a lot of distress for you so at that moment you are aware that there's this distress building up you can use your wisdom and say okay, this is as much as I want to experience of this. I'm going to take a break from this. I will distract myself. You might go for a walk. You might make yourself a cup of tea. That In that moment, you are using wisdom to know and balance what you're doing. So awareness is too painful. So you do a little strategy to get some relief from it. It may be that as your awareness develops or as that particular problem is resolved or is more manageable, you might actually stay, be able to. There might come a time when you are able to stay with it and actually focus totally the mind, be present with that problem. Because even though it's initially uncomfortable, when you are present, if you're totally mindful of that moment, without rejecting, without trying to run away from it or grab at anything, if you're totally mindful at that moment, what actually happens is because our mind is constantly, and these sensations are constantly arising and passing away, because we feed it with fear, it seems to be staying on and on and on. But if you're totally mindful, it's there, it arises, it's painful, it passes away. So you catch the moment of the passing away. And if you keep doing it, you can come to that point where you actually turn your attention and it goes... So that's why it's useful to still slowly build up the mindfulness. But as the Buddha says, the mind is a delicate instrument. You don't go powering into things that the mind is not able to have. You balance it with other things.
1: Uh, thank you, Gloria, and thank you, This Is there somebody else who would like to uh, make a comment or ask a question? I
0: have to ask a
4: question. Thank you, yeah. Geeta. Um In fact, I'd like to ask two questions. The first question is uh, when you said that uh, for years it was difficult to you for you to to drag yourself and to 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 be sitting to to sit for meditation and um i was wondering what what helped you or what did you do or to to improve and to make it uh uh something you're looking forward to to do meditation Mm -hmm. um i'm finding myself uh now more and more, uh, it's more and more difficult for me to to do sitting meditation by myself. So mm. so I love this uh, Zoom session because I I feel like very motivated and always always very energized at the end. So I was wondering if you had some advice to give you to give me so so I can um, so it can help me.
0: Mm-hmm. Um i think for me it was it took many years but in from time to time especially when i do retreats because you're sort of forced to be quiet total silence following a routine everybody's in the hall sitting quietly so you have that group energy and it sort of disciplines the mind from constantly running and getting another cup of tea and distracting yourself. So I needed that support for a long time because when I was home and doing my own thing, there wasn't enough discipline to say, no, just stay, just stay, you know, 15 minutes, half an hour, so on. So it took me quite a while. But then when you're on retreat, especially sometimes you have moments of certain experiences and insights that make a difference. Suddenly you realize, ah, this is something. You see something. You understand a bit more at a deeper level. and That drives you on to explore more because you think, aha, there's something to this teaching that goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, It's only been in the last three or four years that I have actually looked forward to and enjoyed the experience of just being, just sitting, and, you know, looking forward to just to be there, just watch, and watch these things arising, passing away, and then the mind quietens, and yes, it is very peaceful then, so it's got that carrot, you know. You want to do it. But, you know, that's taken me a good 40 years. so. Patience, I never gave up because I found the teaching, just reading the teachings was actually quite helpful because I could understand. You know, We, we used to study Buddhism at school. It was part of our culture. The Buddhist um, religion was quite predominant in Sri Lanka. So when I was sitting for my exams and I had to study Buddhism as an exam paper, and I was studying the Four Noble Truths because we had to. And as I was reading it, suddenly, boom! You thought, "Oh my goodness, this is so true." Why didn't I think of it? You know. <laughs> so suddenly, this big penny drops. You know. So from there, you want to read more, and I taught myself to meditate when I was about fourteen or fifteen. So the interest was there, but it wasn't consistent practice. So I think the fact that you're using the group, I think a lot of people find that when you're in a group, it holds that space for you. You're all doing the same thing. And you can use that energy to get deeper into the meditation, then it starts to make sense, it starts to become pleasant. And we all want pleasant experiences, you know, that's, how it is, isn't it? But it goes deeper than that. You can see this, there is peace. There's an inner a happiness that is comes from within, which you cannot get from outside. And then your dependency on outside people, things to make you happy and peaceful disappears because this is always there. Once you cultivate you, you can tap in. So, it takes a while, but no, as they say, start and keep going.
4: Thank you, Gita. And my second question, if I may, um, you were talking about um, you were advising one of your patients to to practice meta meditation, or she was doing meta meditation, and you said it was uh, helping to to sleep well. Yeah. so I was uh, wondering if you any tips about it or how, how to do it
0: yes um, not
4: meta meditation but how do you do it just before you go to sleep or regularly during the day
0: yeah um I personally use it throughout the day even if it's only two minutes five minutes just just going through those, Thoughts, you know, may I be well, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. Then you move to may all beings be safe, well, happy, and peaceful. So you just the thoughts just sort of come up frequently. But the actual feeling, it takes longer to actually feel that genuinely, right? But it it sort of comes. But people who have actual sleep problems, um Again, it can be something that you do through the day because it resets your something. (laughs) But if you do it before you go to bed, that is a good time for people who do suffer from sleep disturbances. The Buddha actually said there are 11 benefits of metta meditation. I wish I had a piece of paper with the whole list, which is probably here somewhere. But one of the first benefits... Is that you go to sleep, peace soundly. You do not have nightmares. You wake up refreshed. So the first three benefits are to do with sleep. There are others like you. Your mind concentrates quickly. Uh, You're you're loved by humans and non-humans. You are are not harmed by poisons and uh, weapons. and you die peacefully, um, and if this is not your last birth, then at least if this quality is developed, metta, you will be born in the Brahma world. So these are the 11 benefits um, that I can yeah, immediately think of. Yeah.
4: Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much to Melanie and thank you, Geeta, uh, Nikki, in Cornwall. Would like to unmute and ask your question, Geeta. Nikki. Yes. Um, mute.
5: Unmute. It worked. Yes, I am in Cornwall. Thank you. Um, hi, Geeta. Thank you for your um, your words and your the meditation was lovely. I am. I always appreciate your words of experience actually i just wanted to sort of um of mention i went away last week i went to a yoga retreat Mm -hmm. in portugal and interesting when i was listening to melanie talk about you know the the sitting and not thinking you're making any progress and it's difficult and all that and yet i have all that and then I think I then then I'm sat with I go away and I'm with these people for a week. It's quite intense.
0: Mm-hmm. Then
5: I realise um, my practice actually is there. It's not until I'm around other people um, who are hectic and chaotic and loud. Oh, it was loud um, that I realised how um, uh, the my meditation and the Buddhist principles came into—they're very practical, aren't they? There was also interestingly, I found a Buddhist monastery about ten minutes drive from where I was staying. So, when there was Buddhist monks there, and I'd go and meditate with them in the evening, it was so delightful. I've, that was the first time I've been in a real life monastery. So, um, I think that probably carried me through. So I, it was interesting you talking about it's taken you forty years. <laughs> oh, I get that. Yeah, I also work with uh, in the sort of psychiatry field, and I the Buddhist principles and my practice are always influencing and in my um, how I work with them. They very much, very much. Um, so I don't think I've got a question. I just wanted to sort of say. That, what is that what does what does John Bram say comment um complaints mm-hmm. or oh, something else I can't remember the other C. um but thank you Gi. I just want to say thank you thank you for your participation yeah. thank, in thanks
0: week. for sharing that because you often find that other people are sort of thinking along similar lines whether it's the group or the environment these are all ideas that you know of uh, interest to others too so thank you thank you.
1: Yes, thank you, Nikki, and thank you, Geeta. Pinder, did you wish to make a comment or ask a question before? Sorry? Did you wish to
6: make a comment or ask a question? Uh, I was just going to say something uh, after Eddie's question to Geeta about Mm. uh, giving advice about Buddhism. I remember sitting with a chap a long, long time ago, many years ago. He turned out to be a clinical psychologist. Right. So we were talking about CBT, uh, uh, cognitive behavior therapies and this, that, and the other, and blah, 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 and he mentioned a word that I wasn't aware of, and he said, "This mm. I, says, I, I mean, we didn't mention any patients of his, of course, but he said, he, he mentions mindfulness mm-hmm. to some people who come to, to his practice, and I said, what, what the hell is that? <laughs> and, he told me, he says, oh, the Buddhists use that. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. And uh, I talked to my brother a few days after that and said, oh, yeah, so-and-so went on a weekend retreat to Bodhinyana.
0: <laughs>
6: okay. And I wasn't doing anything that weekend, so off I went. And uh, and that's when I discovered, well, not discovered, uh, I had my first retreat and then I met up with this chap again a, f- a few weeks afterwards and I told him about this. He said, oh, how did you like it? I said, it. it was okay. It wasn't uh, something that went bing and I said, I should be here. This is brilliant. Where have I been all my life? It wasn't that, but it was quite good. And he told me a, a little story about a group of friends who had been to one of these things, he said, to a weekend retreat. And you know, arrived there on a Friday evening and he said they lasted half an hour after their meal when the silence starts so they got in their car and went back so i said oh no i i really liked the silence because there's nothing worse than when i used to go on these de- development courses or project management courses or whatever um outward bound courses and he said right talk to the chap sitting next or person sitting next to you give them your life story and vice versa and then you tell us about it my God, I didn't come here to give my story to somebody else and then listen to somebody else's bloody stories. I'm here to listen to you giving a lecture for a day because we've spent so much money on this. So every minute costs me a few hundred pounds. And so the silence was the good thing yeah. for me for that weekend. It was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what yeah, I wanted to yeah. say.
0: Yeah. No, that's actually that's. I'm glad you raised the point of silence because all retreats we do with, you know, we have the noble silence. And really, uh, the silence, um, initially people can feel quite uptight about it or awkward. and some. But some people, it's like fish take to water, which is how it was for me. And you start to appreciate that peace that comes when all that input is not hitting you. And and also, you're not talking to anybody, so you're not generating your own chatter. right? So you've got this whole thing going on, disturbing your capacity to you know, experience peace. And without all that noise, the mind does find, if you do nothing but just turn up and sit and you're in silence, the mind just settles. So you come to appreciate it. They say though that the noble silence is when the whole, when the mind itself becomes still. So that's the meaning of the ultimately the deepest noble silence is when the mind is still. But before that, we can still enjoy and get great peace from silence. Yeah.
6: Yeah, that's the other thing following on from glorious thing. When uh, I find it difficult to. Uh, sit there not every day but quite often and your thoughts come into it and what it is it's, I'm saying is it the thoughts preceding the uh, the distraction so I'm not paying attention mm-hmm. So because you want to escape from this thing so there's nothing unpleasant here but the mind is still wanting to get away from that and, and you go into thoughts so when I get that as you were saying to distract yourself, do something physical, like go for a walk, make yourself a cup of tea. Because yeah. the worst distraction for me is from going from this thought or this group of thoughts to another group of thoughts. So mm-hmm. that makes it worse. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. thing where yeah. you said the key for me then was to do something different, like to get up, go for a walk, or, or even for a few steps, or to mm-hmm. make yourself a cup of tea or something. Yeah. yeah.
0: Because that excessive thinking is, like with restlessness, there's anxiety behind it. It's one of the hindrances we talk about, right? Um, I think one of the hindrances that I was battling with was dullness and drowsiness, which again made me um, go do more walking meditation and built up that practice a lot, lot more than I did sitting until more recent times, because you find what helps you and then you develop from there.